And let's turn in our Bibles to 2 Corinthians chapter 6. Um, I'm going to be reading from the NIV this morning. And uh, we're not in any hurry. Not that the sermon's going to take forever. But we're working our way slowly through chapter 6. So, but we're not in a hurry. We're not on the clock here. So we're enjoying it to get from God's Word all that he has for us. So let's read verses 14, chapter 6, verses 14 through chapter 7, verse 1. We're not going to cover all that ground this morning, but it's good for us to have the context together. Do not be yoked together with unbelievers. For what do righteousness and wickedness have in common? Or what fellowship can light have with darkness? What harmony is there between Christ and Belial? Or what does a believer have in common with an unbeliever? What agreement is there between the temple of God and idols? For we are the temple of the living God. As God has said, I will live with them and walk among them and I will be their God, and they will be my people. Therefore, come out from them and be separate, says the Lord. Touch no unclean thing, and I will receive you. And I will be a father to you, and you will be my sons and daughters, says the Lord Almighty. Therefore, since we have these promises, dear friends, let us purify ourselves from everything that contaminates body and spirit, perfecting holiness out of reverence for God. I wanted to cover all this in one sermon because it is really all connected, but there's just too much to pack it in to one sermon. Let's pray and then jump in to this passage. Father, we, uh, we come to You. We ask, Lord, again for Your Holy Spirit to illuminate Your Word to our hearts, to speak to us, Lord, and so Specifically, wherever your word intersects with our lives, where your spirit brings conviction and encouragement, help us to act upon that, God. Help us to act upon that. Help us, Lord, to leave here with conviction in our heart and with direction in our heart, how we can obey your word. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. This fell again. I think I'm going to go to the handheld mic. I think I may have clipped it and broke it, so my bad. So if you remember last week, we ended with the passage just before this where Paul says, guys, I'm opening my heart to you. I love you guys. I'm opening my affections to you. Open your hearts to me as well. Your heart is restricted. And then he comes to this shift where he goes from my heart is open to you don't be unequally yoked. Come out from them and be separate to God. And then, if we were to continue reading in verse seven, uh, chapter 7, he goes right back to, make room in your heart for me. The shift is so sudden from, I'm opening my heart to you guys, to don't be unequally yoked, to back to, make room in your heart for me, guys. 
that some Bible scholars think this section is a section of Paul's letter that was cut and paste out of a different section and put in here because it feels like such a random shift of thought, such a random change or loss of train of thought. But I don't think it's an interruption. I don't think it's in the wrong place. And I don't think it's an unconnected, random train of thought. I think there's a common link, common theme between all of these verses. And that theme is that they're all about relationships. He says, open, my heart is open to you. That's relationship. Open your heart to me. That's relationship. Then he warns, don't have ungodly relationships. And he's got a certain group of people in mind. We'll talk about that in a few minutes. Don't form ungodly relationships. And then he's going to come back to, after saying come out from those ungodly situations and relationships and be separate to God, he's going to come back to make room in your heart for me. It's all about relationships. Few things have the power to strengthen or damage our walk with God as powerfully as relationships. Paul warns, do not be unequally yoked. What does that mean? What does it mean to be unequally yoked? We've probably, many of us have probably heard this passage used in what? Reference to dating and marriage. Don't get married to an unbeliever. And we'll talk about that in a few minutes. But what did Paul have in mind when he wrote this verse? He's clear that Christians are not to be yoked with unbelievers. Christians are not to be yoked with those who do not profess Jesus Christ as their Savior, who have not received Christ into their hearts, who are not followers of Christ, are not disciples of Christ. So an unbeliever, that is clear to us. The question comes in, what does it mean to be yoked? Does having any association with an unbeliever equate to being yoked to them? Does having a friendship or even a close friendship equate to being yoked to an unbeliever. What exactly does it mean to be yoked? What exactly is this passage warning us to avoid? Well, I want to say right away, I do not believe that this passage is telling us we can't have friendships, even close friendships, with those who do not follow Jesus, who do not believe in Jesus. I don't think that's what Paul's saying at all here. In chapter 5, he tells us we are ministers of reconciliation. Our job is to help reconcile people who are alienated from God into a close friendship with God through faith in Jesus Christ. And in order to, to help someone come and make the journey from unbelief to faith in Christ, you need to build a bridge of trust and of caring. And that sounds a lot like friendship to me. The Pharisees called Jesus the friend of sinners. And to the Pharisees, that was a slur because they considered holiness to be, don't get anywhere near these sinners. But for Jesus, it was a badge of honor because as he enjoyed the company of sinners, ate, drank, 
laughed, talked, and shared, entered their homes, as he did all that with them, he knew that it was not only him, he was reflecting the heart of his Father in heaven to draw near and to love and to care and be friends with sinners. So to be yoked to an unbeliever must mean something different than friendship. Even close friendship. The word yoke is a farming term. It's used to describe two animals that are attached together, yoked together, in order to do a job, to plow the fields. In the Old Testament, God commanded the Jews not to yoke an ox and a donkey together. Now, one of the things is the ox was ritually a clean animal, and the donkey was considered ritually an unclean animal. But on a very practical level, I don't think that's the primary issue. The ox is a much stronger and bigger uh, creature, and to yoke the two together would necessitate them pulling in very different ways. The yoke would not fit well, the pull would be unequal, and the risk of injuring one or both animals would be very high, and in fact is high. In fact, it's, it's a cruel thing to yoke one creature and another who do not match. So I think that we see a picture that being yoked to somebody who's an unbeliever, being yoked to someone, period, refers to a close partnership, to a, a, an intimate and deep bond that unites two people in their life's direction and in their life's labor. For a believer to enter into a deep union in life direction and labor with an unbeliever, while it may work for a little while on a certain level, eventually, ultimately, it's going to chafe both parties because they are pulling in different directions. They are living by different priorities. They are serving a different kingdom, and they are loving a different master. And so eventually, the chances are high the believer will be pulled towards compromise and dilute their witness, which injures both people. In context, it's clear Paul doesn't have marriage or business partnerships in mind. What Paul is thinking about specifically in this passage is the attempt to unify the Christian faith with other religious beliefs or practices or false versions of the Christian faith. The Corinthians have formed a relationship with men who have come in proclaiming themselves to be apostles. Most of this letter has them in view at, in some way or another. We've talked about them quite a bit, right? So these are men who have come in, they've proclaimed themselves as apostles, they proclaim that they are apostles of Christ, they also are diminishing and cutting Paul's knees out, they are attempting to cut his knees out from under him to the Corinthians, and they are attempting to influence them to accept an enlightened gospel, a Christianity that is, that is wiser 
more eloquent, more acceptable to the world. Now, here's what we need to know. This isn't a matter of liking one style of preaching over another. This isn't a matter of this church has a certain style and that church has a different style. These men are not believers who approach ministry a little differently than Paul. In chapter 11, we will have Paul saying to them, they are false apostles. They preach a different gospel. So powerfully will he come out against them that he will say they are deceitful workers and they masquerade as apostles of Christ in the same way that Satan masquerades as an angel of light. Now think about that. Satan, who is an angel of darkness, whose heart is filled with nothing but cruelty and anger and murder and hatred for God, masquerades as a great guy, an angel of light, in order to deceive people and say, hey, that's pretty good, and follow him. In the same way, these men proclaim Christ, but they don't proclaim Christ. They masquerade as apostles of Christ. But in reality, they are deceitful and leading people away from Jesus Christ. And to be yoked to them is to be pulled away from Christ to your eternal jeopardy. That's what Paul has in mind here. Christianity cannot be yoked to any other faith it can't be blended in, it can't be morphed in with other faiths and remain Christianity. It can't be done. We've probably all seen the bumper stickers that spell out the word coexist in the, in the symbols of the different major world religions. And listen, if by coexist they mean that all religions should be allowed and encouraged to worship freely, um, we would totally agree with that, heartily agree with that. Every religion should be allowed to worship freely their God. But if, as I suspect many believe or mean by this uh, bumper sticker, if they mean that all these religions have the same God, lead to the same place, so let's put them all together and, and unify them together, the Christian cannot do that. We cannot do that. Here's the bottom line. Jesus doesn't play well with other faiths. He doesn't play well with other faiths. Jesus said he is the only way to salvation, the only way to God the Father. No other path, no other teaching, no other religion, no other Savior can lead you to God and get you to God. It is mind-bogglingly exclusive. Now, that's what bothers a lot of people about Christianity. And you can reject that. But here's what you can't do. You can't reject that and, and claim to accept Christ. To say that... Uh, I believe in Jesus, but not as the only way to God, is to say, I believe in Jesus, I would just reject what he taught. And you know what you have then is you have erected a false Jesus who doesn't exist. 
and cannot save you. False apostles of Christ. They are, they are erecting a Christ who does not exist and does not have the power to save, but may be more acceptable to the world. When we try to yoke Jesus to other spiritual, religious beliefs or practices, we lose Christianity. And listen, I'm going to make a prediction. This is already, there's already this going on, but I predict that there's going to be more and more pressure put upon believers to unite with other faiths, to, to bring Christianity into the corral. Let's all pull them all together, mix them all together, and love God together. The Revelation talks about a one-world religion, and I'm not sure it's going to be one specific doctrine. It's going to be we all love God. We can love him in different ways. Let's put it all together. There's one God, many ways to him. So we need to resist that pressure because Jesus says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one, no one, no one, no one, not a single human being in all of human history comes to the Father except through me. There's no other name given under heaven and earth by which man can be saved. So Paul is thinking of yoking the Christian faith with other religious spiritual beliefs, specifically these false apostles, and he's warning them, don't do that. Don't yoke your faith to false apostles. But listen, this warning does apply. He, he, that's what he's thinking of, but the warning is general. Don't be unequally yoked with unbelievers. So let's look at some other ways that it does apply in our lives. It does apply to marriage. It really does. There's no question. The Christian should not pursue or enter into a marriage relationship with an unbeliever. Marriage is one of the most intimate and, and spiritual of all human relationships, and to the point that the Bible says the two become one flesh. There, there's no deeper bonding than the marriage relationship, and so to put two together in marriage is a depth of yoking, unlike any other relationship. Now, two people might be compatible in a number of ways. They like the same movies. They like the same jokes. They, they're attracted to each other. They're great people. And they, they care about each other deeply. And so they get married. But the, eventually, the different pulls of life are going to create spiritual chaffing. This becomes even more painful if children enter into the picture. Because the most important issue, the eternal issue, in that way, they're pulling in opposite directions. So for that reason, a Christian should not pursue marriage with an unbeliever. However, I want to just say that if a Christian is married to an unbeliever, they should remain married, and they should trust God for the salvation and for the sanctification of that marriage, and their children. They should trust God actively. Even if the spouse is actively trying to pull the kids away from the Lord, pray and actively trust God for their salvation and for your spouse's salvation. And you can read more about that in 1 Corinthians chapter 7, what to do in that situation. Another thing is business partnerships. Now, I'm going to tell you, I think there are ways for believers and unbelievers to enter into a business partnership 
that does not compromise them, does not compromise the Christian witness or Christian values, but there are some business partnerships that could be very harmful. And I would only say this, so we're not going to break that wide open, but just if you're looking to enter into a business partnership with someone you know they're not a believer, examine carefully the boundaries and parameters of that partnership, what it entails, examine what the partner expects, what their character is, be careful. That's all I'm going to say is be careful before entering into a business relationship. But I think it can happen. I don't think Paul has business partnership in mind here. And let me say the last thing that I think this applies to is friendships. We can have wonderful, dear, deep, and I hope we do, friendships with people who don't name Jesus as their Savior. But if a friendship is influencing you away from Christ, if a friendship is pulling you away from Christ, then you need to either change the dynamics of that friendship or change the friendship. Don't be unequally yoked with unbelievers. Now, in verse 14, Paul goes on to contrast five opposites. And I'm going to be honest with you. This is where things get a little bit awkward and a little uncomfortable. This is a tough part. But it also goes to the heart of who and what we are as believers and who and what people are who are unbelievers let's read it again second part of verse 14 for what do righteousness and wickedness have in common or what can what fellowship can light have with darkness what harmony is there between christ and belial that's another name for the devil what does a believer have in common with an unbeliever what agreement is there between the temple of God and idols? For we are the temple of the living God. Now, here's, here's the problem with this. We, we can totally accept that righteousness and wickedness don't hang out together. We could totally, no problem thinking that light and darkness, they don't get along well, because where you have one, you can't have the other. We certainly don't object to the idea that Jesus and the devil don't hang out together. But then we get, what do believers and unbelievers have in common? And I don't know about you, but that makes me feel a little uncomfortable. It makes me feel a little bit uncomfortable. And if you aren't a Christian, you're watching online, you're not a Christian, it might make you feel more than a little bit uncomfortable. Because Paul puts the contrast, you got light, you got righteousness, you got, you got uh, the temple of God, you've got Christ, and you've got believers on this side. And on this side, you've got wickedness, darkness, idols, the devil, and unbelievers. And that can feel a little uncomfortable, amen? Amen. It's like, whoa, whoa, whoa. That's a little awkward. That's a little strong. If it sounds like spiritual snobbery. 
I want you to hang with me, especially if somebody is not a believer. Hang with me, because we're going to unpack this a little bit. It reveals one of the deepest truths about the human condition, but it also offers one of the greatest invitations ever. Some of the most wonderful, kindest, most generous people I have ever met in my life <clears throat> have been Christians. Some of the meanest, unkindest, most miserable people I've ever met in my life have been unchristians, non-believers. That's true. It's also true that some of the most wonderful, beautiful, kindest, most generous people I've ever met have been unbelievers. And, sadly, some of the most miserable, unkindest, hard-to-be-around people I've ever met have been Christians. That's also true. This, these verses are not about Christians being amazing, beautiful, wonderful, superior people and non-Christians being horrible, terrible, inferior people. That's not what this is about. Don't think that for a moment. I hope everything inside of you repels the idea, as it does in my heart, that we're somehow superior people. This is not a claim that Christians are superior to non-Christians in any way except one. We have a better hope. We have a better Savior. That's it. I want you to listen to Ephesians 2, chapter 2's description of the state of humankind. Not some humankind, all humankind, beginning in verse 1. And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which, in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest, of mankind. Here's what this is saying about the human condition. We're not sick. We're dead. The human condition is spiritually dead. Not unhealthy, dead. Unable to do the right thing. Unable to reach God. Spiritually dead because of sin. And, and I get this picture when I read about this, following the course of the world, following the course of demons. I get this picture of a massive tsunami that sweeps through and carries up every single human being inexorably in its direction, unbreakably, unpowerful, or un impossible for us to break the power of this tsunami as it sweeps us along towards the devil, towards the world, towards eternal death. We cannot break it, but do not picture a person 
helplessly crying out and wanting to be out of this because Paul ends by saying we are by nature children of wrath. We're in this thing because we want to be in it. It's not just the devil. It's not just the world. It is carrying us along. The devil is the power that sweeps this world forward, but our nature wants it. And we are going right along with it as it carries us towards eternal death. We were without hope and without God. That is the human condition. And then Jesus entered this tidal wave of human misery and death in order to rescue us from the deadly power of this tsunami. Verse 4, Ephesians 2 verse 4, continues on, But God, being rich in mercy, because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved and raised us up with him, and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus, so that in the coming ages he may show the immeasurable riches of his grace in kindness towards us in Christ Jesus. For by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God not a result of works, so that no one may boast. I love those verses. God, being rich in mercy, snatched us out of death and made us alive in Christ. He took us from being swept into hell and raised us up to the heavenly places. Our destiny went from being separated from God forever to being a display of God's grace forever. God himself came to live within us to make us alive through the person of the Holy Spirit and we became the temple of God, the place where God lives. You know that. Do you know that God lives within you? God lives within you. If you are a believer in Jesus Christ, but this is the most important part that we understand of this. None of this is because of anything we did. None of this is a testimony to what great people we are. This was and is the gift of God to be received by any and all who receive it in faith. It is a gift offered to everybody. It is the grace of God. It is not us. It is not our better, being better people. And that gift, that grace is offered to every person to receive it or to reject it. So we see now why the believer and the unbeliever in terms of spiritual life and light and direction have nothing in common. Listen, you could possibly line up, you could easily line up a Christian and a non-Christian and look at their lives and absolutely look and see 
that the person who doesn't believe in Christ is every bit as nice and wonderful and kind a person as the Christian. Sometimes they're much nicer, much better, more honest, more caring, more generous, more compassionate. There is so much that could be said about that because what we don't know, I'm going to touch on it for a moment, is the influence of our upbringing and our surroundings and our peers on who we are, even unbelievers. What we don't know is given a different set of circumstances, different surround, different upbringing, different influences in our lives, how deep into sin and evil our hearts could plunge. So that really nice person who's not a believer might be a totally different person where they brought up in a different circumstance. Because the human heart is wicked beyond what we could ever fathom. So you could line up a believer and unbeliever and say, you know what, they're just as good as each other, they're just as moral, they're just as kind, they're just as compassionate, they're all these things. In fact, the, believer, the unbeliever might be in a better place, but one is being swept towards death and one is being carried towards life. That's the difference. And that is only because of Christ. Only because of Christ. So as we... Close. If, if someone's listening, someone's here, you're not a Christian, the most important question you will ever answer is, what will you do with the gift of God offered to you? That's the most important question you'll ever answer in your life. God offers you forgiveness. He offers you salvation. He offers you life. He offers you reconciliation into friendship with God himself. He offers you love. He offers you the kingdom of God he offers you Christ all as a gift if you will but receive him by faith. You receive all of that, all of that in Christ. The question is, will you receive him or will you reject him? And if you ignore him, that's the same as rejecting him. But God offers you all of that. He wants relationship with you. And my question to you is, will you say yes to that gift? Will you say yes to that gift? Most important question. Now, for those who are believers in Christ, the burden of this passage is to ask us, is there a, a relationship in our life that's influencing us away from Christ? away from following Christ and towards worldliness? Is there a bond that has you chafing because you're pulling in one direction, they're pulling in another? Or it's pulling you away from God's will and God's work to a different field? Don't be unequally yoked, Paul says. But do put on Jesus' yoke. Jesus says, are you weary? Are you burdened? Take my yoke upon you, for my yoke is easy and my burden is light. Come learn of me, for I am humble of heart.
Sometimes we need to re-fasten the yoke of the Lord upon us to do His work, His will, His purpose, plow His field for His kingdom. Let's say yes to that. And any, any relationship, any influence, it doesn't have to be a person, any influence that's pulling you away, say no to that. Cut it off. That's what Paul is saying. Cut it off. Let's pray together. Lord, I pray for, first of all, for any, any listening who are not believers in Jesus Christ, that you, O oh Lord, would open their eyes to see your amazing love for them, your love for them. You know their name. You know them personally. You love them personally. I pray that they will stop resisting and stop saying no, and that their hearts will be moved by your spirit to say yes, to receive Jesus Christ as their Lord and Savior and receive all the life and the rescue that Jesus gives to us. I just pray it in Jesus' name. Somebody here listening is, is, is sensing the Spirit of God working in their heart to receive Jesus Christ as their Savior. And I pray for all those who have already received Christ. Lord, there are times when we want to put yokes on that move us away from your will and away from your purposes and away from you. And I pray that right now, Lord, your Spirit will be convicting and helping us to identify if that's happening, help us to identify it and help us to take that yoke off and to put the yoke of Jesus Christ back on. Lord, if we're in a relationship, we, we are yoked in that relationship and it's one with an unbeliever. Lord, give us faith to believe you in that relationship. If we can break it off or change the dynamics of it, but Lord, sometimes we can't. And I pray you give an awesome faith to believe you, to, to trust you with that relationship and to serve you in it. Serve Jesus in it. Give fresh faith and fresh strength to that person. Lord, we love you for your word. We love you for your grace. We love you for your savior, Jesus, that you sent to us. We, we just love you, Lord. And we pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. God bless. Have a great week.